welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Funding the dream of self-supporting schools. In announcing the construction of the three initial industrial schools, Indian Commissioner Edgar Dudney said that although the starting costs would be high, he could see no reason why the schools would not be largely self-supporting in a few years, due to the skills in farming, raising stock, and trades that were being taught to the students. In supporting an Anglican proposal for two industrial schools in Manitoba, Indian Affairs Deputy Minister Lawrence Van Conant wrote to Prime Minister MacDonald that it would be, quote, well to give a grant of money annually to each school established by any denomination for the industrial training of Indian children, end quote. He said that system worked well in Ontario, and it, quote, costs the government less than the whole maintenance of the school would cost, and it enlists the sympathies and assistance of the religious denominations in the education and industrial training of the Indian children, end quote. The government believed that between the forced labor of students and the poorly paid labor of missionaries, it could operate a residential school system on a nearly cost-free basis. The missionaries and the students were indeed a source of cheap labor, but the government was never happy with the quality of the teaching, and no matter how hard students worked, their labor never made the schools self-supporting. Soon after the government established the industrial schools, it began to cut salaries. Initially, the federal government covered all the costs of operating the industrial schools. In 1891, this policy was abandoned in favor of one by which schools received a fixed amount per student, referred to as a per capita grant. The system both intensified the level of competition among churches for students and encouraged principals to accept students who should have been barred from admission because they were too young or too sick. The government never adequately responded to the belated discovery that the type of residential school system that officials had envisioned would cost far more than politicians were prepared to fund. In the early 20th century, chronic underfunding led to a health crisis in the schools and a financial crisis for the missionary societies. Indian Affairs, with the support of leading figures in the Protestant churches, sought to dramatically reduce the number of residential schools, replacing them with day schools. The government abandoned the plan when it failed to receive the full support of all the churches involved in the operation of the schools. Instead, in 1911, the federal government finally implemented a significant increase to the per capita grant received by boarding schools and attempted to impose basic health standards for the schools. This resulted in a short-term improvement. However, inflation eroded the value of the grant increase, and the grant was actually reduced repeatedly during the Great Depression and at the start of the Second World War. Funding for residential schools was always lower than funding for comparable institutions in Canada and the United States that served the general population. In 1937, Indian Affairs was paying, on average, $180 a year per student. This was less than a third of the per capita costs at the time for the Manitoba School for the Deaf. 
$642.40, and the Manitoba School for Boys, $550. In the United States, the annual per capita cost at the Chiloco Indian Residential School in Oklahoma in 1937 was $350. According to the American Child Welfare League, the per capita costs for well-run institutions in that country ranged between $313 and $541. It would not be until the 1950s that changes were made in the funding system in Canada that were intended to ensure that the schools could recruit qualified teachers and improve the student diets. Even these improvements did not end the inequity in residential school funding. In 1966, residential schools in Saskatchewan were spending between $694 and $1,193 a year per student. Comparable child welfare institutions in Canada were spending between $3,300 and $9,855 a year. In the United States, the annual cost of residential care per child was between $4,500 and $14,059. Compelling attendance. It was not until 1894 that the federal government put in place regulations relating to residential school attendance. Under the regulations adopted in that year, residential school attendance was voluntary. However, if an Indian agent or justice of the peace thought that any, quote, Indian child between 6 and 16 years of age is not being properly cared for or educated, and that the parent, guardian, or other person having charge or control of such child is unfit or unwilling to provide for the child's education, end quote, he could issue an order to place the child, quote, in an industrial or boarding school in which there may be a vacancy for such child, unquote. If a child placed in the school under these regulations left a residential school without permission or did not return at a promised time, school officials could get a warrant from an Indian agent or a justice of the peace authorizing them or a police officer, truant officer, or employee of the school or Indian affairs to, quote, search for and take such child back to the school in which it had been previously placed, unquote. With a warrant, one could enter, by force if need be, any house, building, or place named in the warrant and remove the child. Even without a warrant, Indian Affairs employees and constables had the authority to arrest a student in the act of escaping from a residential school and return the child to the school. It was departmental policy that no child could be discharged without departmental approval even if the parents had enrolled the child voluntarily. The government had no legislative basis for this policy. Instead, it relied on the admission form that parents were supposed to sign. In some cases, school staff members signed these forms. By 1892, the department required that all parents sign an admission form when they enrolled their children in a residential school. In signing the form, parents gave their consent that, quote, the principal or head teacher of the institution for the time being shall be the guardian, unquote, of the child. In that year, the Department of Justice provided Indian Affairs with a legal opinion to the effect that, quote, the fact of a parent having signed such an application is not sufficient to warrant the forcible arrest against the parent's will of a truant child who has been admitted to an industrial school pursuant to the application, unquote. It was held that, without legislative authority, no form could provide school administrators with the power of arrest. Despite this warning, well into the 20th century, Indian Affairs would continue to enforce policies regarding attendance for which it had no legal authority. This is not the only example of the government's use of unauthorized measures. In the 1920s, students were to be discharged from residential school when they turned 16. Despite this, William Graham, the Indian commissioner, 
refused to authorize discharge until the students turned 18. He estimated that, on this basis, he rejected approximately 100 applications for discharge a year. In 1920, the Indian Act was amended to allow the government to compel any First Nations child to attend residential school. However, residential school was never compulsory for all First Nations children. In most years, there were more First Nations children attending Indian Affairs day schools than residential schools. During the early 1940s, this pattern was reversed. In the 1944-45 school year, there were 8,865 students in residential schools and 7,573 students in Indian Affairs day schools. In that year, there were reportedly 28,429 school-aged Aboriginal children. This meant that 31.1% of the school-aged Aboriginal children were in residential school. Regulation The residential school system operated with few regulations. Those that did exist were in large measure weakly enforced. The Canadian government never developed anything approaching the education acts and regulations by which provincial governments administered public schools. The key piece of legislation used in regulating the residential school system was the Indian Act. This was a multi-purpose piece of legislation that defined and limited First Nations life in Canada. The Act contained no education-related provisions until 1884. There were no residential school-specific regulations until 1894. These dealt almost solely with attendance and truancy. It was recognized by those who worked within the system that the level of regulation was inadequate. In 1897, Indian Affairs education official Martin Benson wrote, quote, No regulations have been adopted or issued by the department applicable to all its schools, as had been done by the provincial governments, unquote. The situation did not improve over time. The education section of the 1951 Indian Act and the residential school regulations adopted in 1953 were each only four pages in length. By comparison, the Manitoba Public Schools Act of 1954 was 91 pages in length. In addition to the Act, the Manitoba government had adopted 19 education-related regulations. It is also apparent that many key people within the system had little knowledge of the existing rules and regulations. In 1922, an Indian agent in Hagersville, Ontario inquired of departmental headquarters if there had been any changes in the regulations regarding education since the adoption of a set of education regulations in 1908. His question suggests he was completely unaware of major changes to the Indian Act regarding education that had supplanted previous regulations in 1920. In 1926, J.K. Irwin, the newly appointed principal of the Gordon School in Saskatchewan, discovered upon taking office that he could not find any, quote, laid-down regulations as to the duties and powers of a principal of an Indian boarding school, unquote. He wrote to Indian Affairs, asking for a copy of such regulations, since he wanted to know, quote, exactly what I am to do and what powers I have, unquote. Departmental Secretary J.D. McLean informed him that, quote, there are no printed regulations concerning the duties and powers of the principal of an Indian residential school, unquote. The system was so unregulated that in 1968, after Canada had been funding residential schools for 101 years, Indian Affairs Deputy Minister J.A. Macdonald announced, quote, For the first time, we have set down in a precise and detailed manner the criteria which is to be used in future in determining whether or not an Indian child is eligible for these institutions, unquote. Expansion and Decline From the 1880s onwards, residential school enrollment climbed annually. According to federal government annual reports, 
the peak enrollment of 11,539 was reached in the 1956-57 school year. For trends, see Graph 1. Most of the residential schools were located in the northern and western regions of the country. With the exception of Mount Elgin and the Mohawk Institute, the Ontario schools were all in northern or northwestern Ontario. The only school in the Maritimes did not open until 1930. Roman Catholic and Anglican missionaries opened the first two schools in Quebec in the early 1930s. It was not until later in that decade that the federal government began funding these schools. The number of schools began to decline in the 1940s. Between 1940 and 1950, for example, 10 school buildings were destroyed by fire. As Graph 2 illustrates, this decrease was reversed in the mid-1950s when the Federal Department of Northern Affairs and National Resources dramatically expanded the school system in the Northwest Territories and Northern Quebec. Prior to that time, residential schooling in the North was largely restricted to the Yukon and the Mackenzie Valley in the Northwest Territories. Large residences were built in communities such as Inuvik, Yellowknife, Whitehorse, Churchill, and eventually Iqaluit, formerly Frobisher Bay. This expansion was undertaken despite reports that recommended against the establishment of residential schools, since they would not provide children with the skills necessary to live in the North, skills they otherwise would have acquired in their home communities. The creation of the large hostels was accompanied by the opening of what were termed, quote, small hostels, unquote, in the smaller and more remote communities of the Eastern Arctic and the Western Northwest Territories. Policy Towards Métis and Inuit Students Many of the early advocates of residential schooling in Canada expected that the schools would take in both Aboriginal children who had status under the Indian Act, in other words, they were Indians as defined by the Act, as well as Aboriginal children who, for a variety of reasons, did not have status. The federal government classed these individuals alternately as, quote, non-status Indians, unquote, quote, half-breeds, or, quote, Métis. The early church-run boarding schools made no distinction between status and non-status, or Métis children. The federal government position on the matter was constantly shifting. It viewed the Métis as members of the, quote, dangerous classes, unquote, whom the residential schools were intended to civilize and assimilate. This view led to the adoption of policies that allowed for the admission of Métis children to the schools at various times. However, from a jurisdictional perspective, the federal government believed that the responsibility for educating and assimilating Métis people lay with provincial and territorial governments. There was a strong concern that if the federal government began providing funding for the education of some of the children the provinces and territories were responsible for, it would find itself subject to having to take responsibility for the rest. When this view is dominated, Indian agents would be instructed to remove Métis children from residential schools. Despite their perceived constitutional responsibility, provincial and territorial governments were reluctant to provide services to Métis people. They did not ensure that there were schools in Métis communities or worked to see that Métis children were admitted and welcomed into the general public school system. Many Métis parents who wished to see their children educated in schools had no option but to try to have them accepted into residential school. In some cases, these would be federally funded schools, but in other cases, Métis children attended church-run schools or residences that did not receive federal funding. Provincial governments slowly began to provide increased educational services to Métis students after the Second World War. As a result, Métis children lived in residences and residential schools that were either run or funded by provincial governments. The Métis experience is an important reminder that the impacts of residential schooling extend beyond the formal residential school program that Indian Affairs operated. Prior to the 1950s, most of the students who attended schools in the Northwest Territories were either First Nations or Métis. As late as 1949, 
only 111 Inuit students were receiving full-time schooling in the North. The hostile system that Northern Affairs established in the Northwest Territories in the mid-1950s did not restrict admission to First Nation students. It was only at this point that large numbers of Inuit children began attending residential schools. The impact of the schools on the Inuit was complex. Some children were sent to schools thousands of kilometers from their homes and went years without seeing their parents. In other cases, parents who had previously been supporting themselves by following the seasonal cycle of land and marine-based resource harvesting began settling in communities with hostels so as not to be separated from their children. Because of the majority of the Aboriginal population in two of the three northern territories, the per capita impact of the schools in the north is higher than anywhere else in the country. And, because the history of these schools is so recent, not only are there many living survivors today, but there are also many living parents of survivors. For these reasons, both the intergenerational impacts and the legacy of the schools, the good and the bad, are particularly strongly felt in the north. The Integration Policy by 1945, the Indian Affairs residential school system, starved for funding for 15 years, was on the verge of collapse. Not only was the existing Indian Affairs education system lacking money and resources, but also there were no school facilities of any sort for 42% of the school-aged First Nations children. Having concluded that it was far too expensive to provide residential schooling to these students, Indian Affairs began to look for alternatives. One was to expand the number of Indian Affairs day schools. From 1945 to 46 to 1954 to 55, the number of First Nations students in Indian Affairs day schools increased from 9,532 to 17,947. In 1949, the Special Joint Committee of the Senate and House of Commons appointed to examine and consider the Indian Act recommended, quote, that wherever and whenever possible, Indian children should be educated in association with other children, unquote. In 1951, the Indian Act was amended to allow the federal government to enter into agreements with provincial governments and school boards to have First Nations students educated in public schools. By 1960, the number of students attending, quote, non-Indian, unquote, schools, 9,479, had surpassed the number living in residential schools, 9,471. The transfer of First Nations students into the public school system was described as, quote, integration, unquote. By then, the overall policy goal was to restrict the education being given in Indian Affairs schools to the lower grades. Therefore, it was expected that during the course of their schooling, at least half of the students then in Indian Affairs schools would transfer to a, quote, non-Indian, unquote, school. The integration policy was opposed by some of the church organizations. Roman Catholic Church officials argued that residential schooling was preferable for three reasons. One, teachers in public schools were not prepared to deal with Aboriginal students. Two, students in public schools often expressed racist attitudes towards Aboriginal students. And three, Aboriginal students felt acute embarrassment over their impoverished conditions, particularly in terms of the quality of the clothing they wore and the food they ate. These were all issues that students and parents raised as well. Child Welfare Facilities From the 1940s onwards, residential schools increasingly served as orphanages and child welfare facilities. By 1960, the federal government estimated that 50% of the children in residential schools were there for child welfare reasons. What has come to be referred to as the, quote, 60s scoop, unquote, the dramatic increase in the apprehension of Aboriginal children from the 1960s onwards, was in some measure simply a transferring of children from one form of institution, the residential school, to another, the child welfare agency. 
the schools were not funded or staffed to function as child welfare institutions. They failed to provide their students with the appropriate level of personal and emotional care children need during their childhood and adolescence. This failure applied to all students, but was of particular significance in the case of the growing number of social welfare placements in the schools. Some children had to stay in the schools year-round because it was thought there was no safe home to which they could return. The residential school environment was not a safer or more loving haven. These children spent their entire childhoods in an institution. The closure of residential schools, which commenced in earnest in 1970, was accompanied by a significant increase in the number of children being taken into care by child welfare agencies. By the end of the 1970s, the transfer of children from residential schools was nearly complete in southern Canada, and the impact of the 60s scoop was in evidence across the country. In 1977, Aboriginal children accounted for 44% of the children in care in Alberta, 51% of the children in care in Saskatchewan, and 60% of the children in care in Manitoba. In those residences that remained in operation, the percentage of social welfare cases remained high. The Road to Closure, 1969 in 1968, the federal government drastically restructured the residential school system by dividing the schools into residences and day schools, each with a principal or administrator. In June of the following year, the federal government took direct control over all the schools in southern Canada. Because churches were allowed to continue to appoint the residence administrators, their presence continued in many schools in the coming years. They were, however, no longer directly responsible for the facilities. In 1969, the federal government also began to transfer the hostels and day schools in the Yukon and Northwest Territories to their respective territorial governments. Most of the small hostels in the eastern Arctic and Nunavik, Arctic Quebec, were closed by the end of 1971. Four small hostels were also operated in the western and central Arctic. The last of these, located at Cambridge Bay, did not close until the late 1990s. Having assumed control over the southern Canadian schools in 1969, the federal government commenced what would prove to be a protracted process of closing the system down. According to the Indian Affairs Annual Report for 1968-69, the department was responsible for 60 residences. Two years later, the number was down to 45. The government takeover of the residential schools was coincided with the release of the federal government's white paper on, quote, Indian policy, unquote. This document proposed a massive transfer of responsibility for First Nations people from the federal to provincial governments. It called for the repeal of the Indian Act, the winding up of the Department of Indian Affairs, and the eventual extinguishment of the treaties. The recently formed National Indian Brotherhood, NIB, described the White Paper as a document intended to bring about, quote, the destruction of a nation of people by legislation and cultural genocide, unquote. In its response, the NIB proposed, quote, Indian control of Indian education, unquote. In 1971, Indian Affairs Minister Jean Chrétien announced that, in the face of First Nations resistance, the federal government was abandoning the policy directions outlined in the White Paper. By then, First Nations communities had already taken over one residential school. In the summer of 1970, parents of children at the Blue Quills Alberta School occupied the school, demanding that its operation be turned over to a First Nations education authority. They took this measure in response to reports that the school was to be turned into a residence and their children were to be educated at a nearby public school. The Blue Quills conflict was the result of both long-standing local dissatisfaction with the administration of the school and First Nations opposition to the policy of integration. It was estimated that over a thousand people participated in the sit-in, with rarely fewer than 200 people being at the school on any given day. 
17 days after the sit-in commenced, Minister Jean Chrétien announced that the school would be transferred to the Blue Quills Native Education Council. In coming years, the Quapel, Prince Albert, Duck Lake, Lestock, and Grayson facilities in Saskatchewan were also taken over by First Nations authorities. The Christie residence in Tofino, British Columbia, was also operated briefly by an Aboriginal authority. The federal government, however, remained committed to the closing of the facilities. Because of the government's lengthy history of underfunding residential schools, many of the schools were in poor repair. Between 1995 and 1998, the last seven residences in southern Canada were closed. Starting in the 1970s, territorial governments, in which former residential school students were serving as cabinet ministers, also began expanding the number of day schools as part of a campaign to close residential schools in the north. The last large hostel in the Yukon closed in 1985. By 1986, there were only three large hostels operating in the Northwest Territories. Grolier Hall, the last large hostel in the North, closed in 1997. If one dates the residential school system back to the early 1830s, when the Mohawk Institute first took in boarders, the system had been in operation for over 160 years. The closing of the schools did not mark the end of the history of residential schooling in Canada. By the 1990s, Former students had begun to make Canadians aware of the tremendous harm that the residential school experience had caused to Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities. The school experience. Education. The children's work was merely memory work. As educational institutions, the residential schools were failures and regularly judged as such. In 1923, former Regina Industrial School principal R.B. Heron delivered a paper to a meeting of the Regina Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church that was highly critical of the residential school system. He said that parents generally were anxious to have their children educated, but they complained that their children, quote, are not kept regularly in the classroom, that they are kept out at work that produces revenue for the school, that when they return to the reserves, they have not enough education to enable them to transact ordinary business, scarcely enough to enable them to write a legible letter, unquote. The school success rate did not improve. From 1940-41 to 1959-60, 41.3% of each year's residential school grade 1 enrollment was not promoted to grade 2. Just over half of those who were in grade 2 would get to grade 6. Many principals and teachers had low expectations of their students. Wikwemekong, Ontario principal R. Bowden wrote in 1883, quote, what we may reasonably expect from the generality of children is certainly not to make great scholars of them. Good and moral as they may be, they lack great mental capacity, unquote. He did not think it wise to expect them to, quote, be equal in every respect to their white brethren, unquote. In preparing a 1928 report on the Anglican school at Onion Lake, a Saskatchewan government school inspector expressed his belief that, quote, in arithmetic, abstract ideas develop slowly in the Indian child, unquote. Some thought it was a risky matter to give the students too much education. Mount Elgin principal S. R. McVitie wrote in 1928 that, quote, classroom work is an important part of our training, but not by any means the most important, unquote. He added, quote, in the case of the Indian, a little learning is a dangerous thing, unquote. Much of what went on in the classroom was simply repetitious drill. A 1915 report on the Roman Catholic school at the Blood Reserve in Alberta noted, quote, the school's work was merely memory work and did not appear to be developing any deductive power, altogether too parrot-like and lacking expression, unquote. 
1932 inspector's report from the Grayson, Saskatchewan school suggests there had been little change. Quote, the teaching as I saw it today was merely a question of memorizing and repeating a mass of, to the children, quote, meaningless, unquote, facts, unquote. The classrooms were often severely overcrowded. At the Quapel School in 1911, Sister McGurk had 75 girls in her junior classroom. The inspector of Roman Catholic schools reported to Ottawa that this was an, quote, almost impossible, unquote, situation. The Indian Affairs School's branch maintained that the principals and the staff were, quote, appointed by the church authorities, subject to the approval of the department as to qualifications, unquote. In reality, the churches hired staff and the government then automatically approved their selections. The churches placed a greater priority on religious commitment than on teaching ability. Because the pay was so low, many of the teachers lacked any qualifications to teach. In 1908, Indian Affairs Inspector F.H. Page reported that at the Battleford School, quote, frequent changes in the staff at this school has not been to its advantage, unquote. The problem lay not with the principal, but with the fact that, quote, more profitable employment is available in the district, and furthermore, the salaries paid are not as high as are paid in other public institutions, unquote. When a British Columbian Indian agent recommended that schools be required to hire only qualified staff, he was told by his superior, British Columbia Indian Superintendent A.W. Vowell, that such a requirement would result in the churches applying for, quote, larger grants, unquote. And, as Vowell understood it, Indian Affairs, quote, is not at present disposed to entertain requests for increased grants to Indian boarding and industrial schools, unquote. In 1955, 55, 23%, of the 241 teachers in residential schools directly employed by Indian Affairs had no teacher certificate. In 1969, Indian Affairs reported it was still paying its teachers less than they could make in provincial schools. Quote, as a result, there are about the same number of unqualified teachers, some 140, in federal schools, residential and non-residential, now as 10 years ago, unquote. In the minds of some principals, religious training was the most valuable training the schools provided. In 1903, Brandon Manitoba Principal T. Ferrier wrote that, quote, while it is very important that the Indian child should be educated, it is of more importance that he should build up a good, clean character, unquote. Such a heavy emphasis was required, in Ferrier's opinion, to, quote, counteract the evil tendencies of the Indian nature, unquote. Louise Moyne recalled that religious instruction and observation were a constant part of life at the Quapel School in the early 20th century. Quote, from the time we got out of bed at the sound of the bell, we went down on our knees to pray. After we had washed and dressed, we headed for the chapel to attend low mass, which was always held at 7 a.m., unquote. The staff handbook for the Presbyterian School in Kenora in the 1940s stated it was expected that, upon leaving the school, most students would, quote, return to the Indian reserves from which they had come, unquote. Given this future, staff members were told that, quote, the best preparation we can give them is to teach them the Christian way of life, unquote. Not surprisingly, many of those who succeeded academically followed careers in the church. Kokwalitsa graduate Peter Kelly became a Methodist church minister. Emmanuel College graduate Edward Ahanakew became an Anglican minister. Others worked for government or taught school. Quapel graduate Daniel Kennedy became an interpreter and general assistant for the Assiniboine Indian Agency. Joseph Dion, a graduate of the Onion Lake School, 
taught school for many years in Saskatchewan. Still others pursued business and professional careers. After attending the Mohawk Institute, Beverly Johnson went to Helmet College in London, Ontario, where he excelled at sports and drama. He then went to work for the New York Life Insurance Company in Pennsylvania. A graduate of the Mohawk Institute, N. E. Lickers was called to the bar in 1938 and was described by the Bradford Expositor as the, quote, first Ontario Indian lawyer, unquote. Despite these successes, little encouragement generally was offered to students who wished to pursue further education. Oliver Martin, who was raised on the Six Nations Reserve in Ontario and went on to become an Ontario magistrate, recalled being told by Indian Affairs Deputy Minister Duncan Campbell Scott, quote, it's no use sending you Indians to school, you just go back to the reserve anyway, unquote. For many students, classroom life was foreign and traumatic. David Charleston said he found the regimentation at the Christie British Columbia School so disturbing that he, quote, never wanted to learn, so I jumped into my shell. I took kindergarten twice because of what happened to me. I didn't want to learn, unquote. At the Berto School in Manitoba, Isabel Whitford said she had a hard time adjusting to the new language and the classroom discipline. Quote, every time I couldn't get an answer, like, you know, she would pull my ears and shake my head, unquote. Betsy Olson described classwork at the Prince Albert Saskatchewan School as a torment, in which her, quote, spelling was always 30, 40, it was way down, and when we did spelling, sometimes I freeze, I couldn't move, I just scribbled because I couldn't move my hand, unquote. Leona Akawa never felt comfortable in the classroom at the Spanish Ontario School. For much of her time in school, she was frightened or intimidated. Quote, I'd hear my name, but I never got to answer. I stood up, never got to answer what they were saying when they sat me down, and I'd get a good slap after, after you, you leave there for not being nice in school, unquote. Since the 1920s, Indian Affairs had required residential schools to adopt provincial curricula. The department had also asked provincial governments to have their school inspectors inspect Indian Affairs schools. The wisdom of this practice had been questioned during the hearings of the Special Joint Committee of the Senate and House of Commons Inquiry into the Indian Act in the 1940s. Andrew Moore, a secondary school inspector from the province of Manitoba, told the committee members that Indian Affairs took full responsibility for all aspects of First Nations education, including curriculum. Provincial education departments, including the one he worked for, were, quote, not organized or not interested in Indian schools, unquote. In 1963, D.W. Hepburn, the former principal of the Federal School in Inuvik, published an article with the ominous headline, quote, Northern Education, Facade for Failure, unquote. He argued that the education being provided in the new federal schools was, quote, hopelessly inadequate. The reasons for this failure are clear. The aims of education set forth by the department are thoroughly confused, the curriculum is inappropriate, and many current practices of the system are not only inconceived, but actually harmful. Unquote. Although 60% of the students at the Inuvik school were in the first three grades, few teachers had any background in primary education, and quote, almost none has any special training in native education and will receive none from the department, unquote. The schools were producing individuals who, quote, lack not only the skills required for most permanent wage employment, but also those necessary for the traditional economy, unquote. The decision to leave curriculum to provincial education departments meant that Aboriginal students were subjected to an education that demeaned their history, ignored their current situation, and did not even recognize them or their families as citizens. This was one of the reasons for the growing Aboriginal hostility to the Indian Affairs Integration Policy. 
an examination of the treatment of Aboriginal people in provincially approved textbooks reveals a serious and deep-rooted problem. In response to a 1956 recommendation that textbooks be developed that were relevant to Aboriginal students, Indian Affairs official R.F. Davey commented, quote, the preparation of school texts is an extremely difficult matter, unquote. It was his opinion that, quote, there are other needs which can be met more easily and should be undertaken first, unquote. In the following years, assessments of public school textbooks showed that they continued to perpetuate racist stereotypes of Aboriginal people. A 1968 survey pointed out that in some books, the word squaw was being used to describe Aboriginal women and the word redskins used to describe Aboriginal people. Students also noted that the curriculum belittled their ancestry. Mary Corshen said, quote, Their only mandate was to Christianize and civilize, and it's written in black and white, and every single day we were reminded, unquote. Lorna Cochran could never forget an illustration in a social studies text. Quote, there was a picture of two Jesuits laying in the snow. They were murdered by these two, quote, savages, unquote. And they had this, what we call, quote, a blood-curdling look, unquote, on their faces, is how I remember that picture, unquote. When the curriculum was not racist, it was bewildering and alienating. Many students could not identify with the content of the classroom materials. For instance, Lillian Elias remembers that, quote, when I look at Dick and Jane, I thought Dick and Jane were in heaven when I saw all the green grass. That's how much I knew about Dick and Jane, unquote. Some students said that the limits of the education they had received in residential school became apparent when they were integrated into the public school system. Many said there was no expectation that they would succeed. Walter Jones never forgot the answer that a fellow student at the Alberni British Columbia School was given when he asked if he would be able to go to grade 12. Quote, that supervisor said, quote, you don't need to go that far, unquote. He says, quote, your people are never going to get education to be a professional worker, and it doesn't matter what lawyer or doctor or electrician or anything that a person has to go to school for, unquote. Some northern schools developed reputations for academic success. Grandin College in Fort Smith was established originally to recruit young people for the Catholic ministry. A new principal, Jean Pochet, decided to focus on providing young men and women with leadership training. The school became known as a, quote, leadership factory, unquote, producing numerous future government leaders for the North. Students who attended the Churchill Vocational Center spoke about how they were taught by open-minded teachers who were willing to expose them to the social and political changes taking place across the world in the 1960s. John Amalgolik wrote that at the Churchill Vocational School, quote, we had excellent teachers. To this day, we still talk about them. They treated us as ordinary people. We had never experienced this sort of attitude before, and it was, in a way, liberating to be with teachers that treated you as their equal, unquote. David Simalik spoke about how his time at residential school gave him a series of new opportunities. He fondly remembers excelling at math and spelling competitions and traveling to Montreal for Expo 67. Specific teachers were remembered with gratitude. When Roddy Suse lived in residence, he attended a local public school. He credited his high school principal at the Panoka, Alberta Public School for pushing him to succeed. Martha Loon said that at the Poplar Hill, Ontario School in the 1980s, there were staff members who befriended and helped her and her siblings. There was one staff member to whom she could tell all her problems. Quote, I could say anything to her and we go for walks sometimes. So I could tell her anything and she wouldn't, she wouldn't say anything to other staff members about it. So in a way, that's, you know, gave me a chance to express my frustrations and the things that I didn't like, unquote. 
other students were able to concentrate on their studies. Frederick Ernest Coe said that at the Stringer Hall in Inuvik, he devoted all his energies to his schoolwork. Quote, you kind of develop a protective mechanism on the shell that you didn't rat on anybody. You kind of behave, you followed orders, and things will go smooth. Unquote. Madeline Dion Stout succeeded academically at the Blue Quill School, but she did not credit the school for her success. Quote, it's not residential school that made me a good student. My, the fundamental values and good example I had before I went to residential school by my grandfather and my grandparents and all the old people on the reserve where I grew up are the ones who made me a good student, unquote. Work, no idleness here. Student education was further undermined by the amount of work the students had to do to support the schools. Because Indian Affairs officials had anticipated that the residential schools would be self-sufficient, students were expected to raise or grow and prepare most of the food they ate, to make and repair much of their clothing, and to maintain the schools. As a result, most of the residential schools operated on what was referred to as the, quote, half-day system, unquote. Under this system, which amounted to institutionalized child labor, students were in class for half the day and in what was supposed to be vocational training for the other half. Often, as many students, teachers, and inspectors observed, the time allotted for vocational training was actually spent in highly repetitive labor that provided little in the way of training. Rather, it served to maintain the school operations. The half-day system was not a formally mandated system. Some schools did not use it, and those that did use it implemented it on their own terms. When, in 1922, Indian Affairs education official Russell Ferrier recommended that the Chaplow, Ontario, school implement the half-day system, he had to rely on his memory of visits to other schools in order to describe how the system operated. Indian Affairs had no official written description of the system. This is telling evidence of the haphazard way in which residential schools were managed. While the half-day system was supposed to apply only to the older students, the reality was that every student worked. Above and beyond the half-day that students spent in vocational training, it was not uncommon for them to perform daily chores both before and after school. As a result, students often spent more than half a day working for the school. At High River, Alberta, in the 1880s, Students who were not learning a trade were expected to put in two hours a day of chores in the winter and four hours in the summer. According to Principal E. Claude, quote, to these youngest ones pertain the weeding of the garden and the housework on their side of the school, and I must say that this summer none denied our watchwork, quote, no idleness here, unquote, as all work was exclusively done by the pupils, unquote. From the time the schools were opened, parents and inspectors raised concerns about just how much work students were being required to do. Inspector T.P. Wadsworth claimed in 1884 that the boys at the Battleford School generally enjoyed their chores, but added that he would protest, quote, against forcing these little fellows to haul water every day and all day from the river in winter, as was the case last year, unquote. In 1886, Quapel School Principal Joseph Hugonard wrote, quote, during the summer they have more manual labor and recreation. The parents cannot understand that the pupils are here to learn how to work as well as to read and learn. We therefore cannot at present devote too much time to the former, unquote. Inspector Wadsworth returned to the issue of overwork in 1893 when he said that much of the farm work at the Middle Church Manitoba School was too much for the boys. The girls were also set to work in the laundry at a, quote, tender age, unquote. Gilbert Watney, who attended the Battleford School in the first decade of the 20th century, recalled, quote, they didn't do any farm work or any kind of work until you got to, at that time, standard three whether you were nine years old or 15 years old, unquote. 
After he turned nine, he, quote, never saw another full day of school until I left, unquote. By then, the school had drastically reduced the number of trades it taught. Quote, there was just blacksmithing, carpentering, and farming, unquote. According to Lillian Elias, each fall, a barge would arrive in Aklavik loaded with logs for the school furnace. The students would form a long chain leading from the barge to the furnace room, and with the assistance of the school staff, unload the barge. The work was inadequately supervised and often dangerous. There are accounts of students getting hands caught in power equipment in the school laundries, the kitchens, workshops, and fields. Principals tended to place the blame on student carelessness and neglected to report such injuries to the government. Several injuries were recorded only after the student's parents complained or the government received a bill for the hospital treatment of a student. In December 1935, a mangle, a type of clothes ringer, at the Capel School crushed several fingers on Florence McLeod's right hand, which were amputated. The school principal, G. Leonard, stressed that, quote, this mangle has been in use at this school for several years and all the girls are familiar with its operation, unquote. Indian Affairs Secretary A. E. McKenzie concluded that, quote, all the necessary precautions were taken, and while the accident to Florence McLeod is regretted, it was through no fault of the school management, unquote. The school's failure to protect its students can be seen in the fact that McLeod's father, Henry, had been injured in a similar fashion when he was a student at the same school. In 1941, a 12-year-old boy lost all the fingers on one hand in an accident in the Brandon, Manitoba school barn. Eight years later, 15-year-old Rodney Beardy died in a tractor accident at the same school. A student at the Edmonton school lost a foot in 1944 after an accident during the operation of a machine used in the preparation of fodder. Two boys from the Berto, Manitoba school were injured in a truck accident in 1942. From Indian Affairs correspondence, it appears that the accident involved a truck carrying 70 boys who were being taken from the school to the fields to do farm work. Indian Affairs official R.A. Hoey criticized the principal for allowing the practice to take place, noting that, quote, it is almost unbelievable that the principal should permit 70 pupils to be conveyed in a truck, unquote. Even though the half-day system was supposedly eliminated in the early 1950s, students continued to be overworked. After Sam Ross ran away from the Berto School in 1959, he told Indian Affairs official J.R. Bell that he wanted to continue his education, but had been forced to work, quote, too hard, unquote, at the school. He said that from September to Christmas of the previous year, he'd worked in the school barn every day between, quote, 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., and from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., again at recess, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., and had had to stock up the furnace with coal at 10 o'clock before retiring, unquote. Ross said that, quote, he likes school, but not working like a hired hand, unquote. Bell recommended that the amount of student labor being done at the Bertel School be investigated. Language and culture, quote, the Indian language is indeed seldom heard in the institution, unquote. The government's hostile approach to Aboriginal languages was reiterated in numerous policy directives. In 1883, Indian Commissioner Edgar Dudney instructed Battleford School Principal Thomas Clark that great attention was to be given, quote, towards imparting a knowledge of the art of reading, writing, and speaking the English language rather than that of Cree, unquote. In 1889, Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs Lawrence Van Conant informed Bishop Paul Duro that in the new Cranbrook British Columbia School, mealtime conversations were to be, quote, conducted exclusively in the English language, unquote. The principal was also to set a fixed time during which Aboriginal languages could be spoken. In 1890, Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed proposed, quote, at the most, 
the native language is only to be used as a vehicle of teaching and should be discontinued as such as soon as practical, unquote. English was to be the primary language of instruction, quote, even where French is taught, unquote. The Indian Affairs Program of Studies for Indian Schools of 1893 advised, quote, every effort must be made to induce pupils to speak English and to teach them to understand it, unless they do the whole work of the teacher is likely to be wasted, unquote. Principals regularly reported on their success in suppressing Aboriginal languages. In 1887, Principal E. Claude boasted that his 30 students at the High River School, quote, all understand English passably well, and few are unable to express themselves in English. They talk English in recreation. I scarcely need any coercive measures to oblige them to do so, unquote. In 1898, the Kamloops principal reported that, quote, English is the only language used at all times by the pupils, unquote. That same year, the Mission British Columbia principal wrote, quote, English is the common language of the school. The Indian language is indeed seldom heard in the institution, except with the newly arrived pupils, unquote. The 1898 report from the principal of the Anglican School at Onion Lake indicated that the school was one of the few exceptions. There, the children were taught to, quote, read and write both Cree and English, unquote. Inspectors viewed the continued use of Aboriginal languages by the students as a sign of failure. The principal of the Red Deer School was taken to task in 1903 by an inspector who felt that a, quote, serious drawback to schoolwork, as well as an evidence of bad discipline, was the use of the Cree language, which was quite prevalent, unquote. This policy of language suppression continued well into the 20th century. After a 1935 tour of Canada, Oblate Superior General Theodore Labouret expressed concern over the strict enforcement of prohibitions against speaking Aboriginal languages. In his opinion, quote, the forbidding of children to speak Indian, even during recreation, was so strict in some of our schools that any lapse would be severely punished, to the point that children were led to consider it a serious offense, unquote. Students had strong memories of being punished for, quote, speaking Indian, unquote. Mary Angus, who attended the Battlefort School in the late 19th century, said that students caught speaking their own language were given a close haircut, quote, all the hair cut to be as a man, that what they do, for us not to talk, we were afraid of that, to have our hair cut, unquote. At the Fraser Lake School in British Columbia, Mary John said that she could speak her own language only in whispers. Melvina McNabb was seven years old when she was enrolled in the File Hill School, and quote, I couldn't talk a word of English. I talked Cree and I was abused for that, hit and made to try to talk English, unquote. Raymond Hill, who was a student at the Mohawk Institute in Brantford in the early years of the 20th century, said, quote, I lost my language. They threatened us with a strapping if we spoke it, and within a year I lost all of it. They said they thought we were talking about them, unquote. Language use often continued in secret. Mary England recalled that while Aboriginal languages were banned at the mission school in the early 20th century, children would still speak it to one another. Clyde Peters said he stopped speaking his Aboriginal language at the Mount Elgin School after he found out the school punished students for doing so. Quote, I never got the strap for it, but I was warned enough that I didn't do it. Unquote. Even after that, he and his friends would speak to each other when they thought no one else could hear them. Quote, when we'd go up in the dormitories in the evening, I had a friend from Cernia who I could talk with, unquote. Many of the students came to the school fluent in an Aboriginal language, with little or no understanding of French or English. This trend continued well into the post-war period. For these children, the first few months in the school were disorienting and frightening. Arthur McKay arrived in the Sandy Bay Manitoba School in the early 1940s with no knowledge of English. Quote, they told me not to speak my language, and everything. 
so I always pretended to be asleep at my desk so they wouldn't ask me anything, unquote. Peter Nakoji recalled being punished for writing in his notebook in Cree syllabics at the Fort Albany, Ontario school. Mika Alivakta came to the Pang Nertang school in what is now Nunavut with no knowledge of English. When she failed to obey an instruction because she did not understand it, she was slapped on the hands. Quote, that's how my education began, unquote. On her first day of school in Pangnertung, the teacher overheard Sam caught Nick speaking to a friend in Inuktitut. Quote, he took a ruler and grabbed my head like this and then smacked me in the mouth with the ruler four times, unquote. At the Quapel School in the mid-1960s, Greg Rainbill said he was punished for failing to carry out instructions given to him in a language he did not understand. Quote, the nuns will get frustrated with you when they talk to you in French or English and you're not knowing what they're talking about and you're pulled around by the ear, unquote. At the Shibanakati school, a staff member once caught William Herney speaking Micmac with his brother. She strapped him and then washed his mouth out with soap. Alphonsine McNeely underwent the same punishment at the Roman Catholic school at Aklavac in the 1940s. Pierrette Benjamin said she was forced to eat soap at the Turk school. Quote, the principal, she put it in my mouth and she said, eat it, eat it, unquote. The language policy disrupted families. When John Kistabish left the Amos Quebec school, he could no longer speak Algonquin, and his parents could not speak French, the language that he had been taught in the school. As a result, he found it almost impossible to communicate with them about the abuse he experienced at the school. Quote, I had tried to talk with my parents, and no, it didn't work. We were well anyway, because I knew that they were my parents when I left the residential school. The communication wasn't there. Unquote. Culture was attacked as well as language. In his memoirs, Stony Chief John Snow tells of how at the Morley, Alberta school, the quote, education consisted of nothing that had any relationship to our homes and culture. Indeed, Stony culture was condemned explicitly and implicitly, unquote. He recalled being taught that the only good people on earth were non-Indians, and specifically white Christians. Andrew Bolkaff recalled that at the residential school in Cardson, Alberta, students were not only punished for speaking their own language, but they were also discouraged from participating in traditional cultural activities. Evelyn Kelman recalled that the principal at the Brockett, Alberta school warned students that if they attended a sun dance that was to be held during the summer, they would be strapped on their return to school. Marilyn Buffalo recalled being told by Hobama, Alberta school staff that the sun dance was, quote, devil worship, unquote. One year, Sarah McLeod returned to the Kamloops school with a miniature totem pole that a family member had given her for her birthday. When she proudly showed it to one of the nuns, it was taken from her and thrown out. She was told that it was nothing but devilry. School officials did not limit their opposition to Aboriginal culture to the classroom. In 1942, Glicken, Alberta principal John House became involved in a campaign to have two Blackfoot chiefs deposed, in part because of their support for traditional dance ceremonies. In 1943, F.E. Anfield, the principal of the Alert Bay British Columbia School, wrote a letter encouraging former students not to participate in local potlatches, implying that such ceremonies were based on outdated superstition and led to impoverishment and family neglect. Even when it did not directly disparage Aboriginal culture, the curriculum undermined Aboriginal identity. Fadi Andre, who attended the Sepoli Quebec School in the 1950s, recalled how as a student, he wanted, quote, to resemble the white man. Then in the meantime, they're trying by all means to strip you of who you are as an Innu. When you are young, you are not aware of what you are losing as a human being, unquote. It was not until the 1960s that attitudes began to change about the place of Aboriginal language and culture in residential schools. Alex Alkachuk said that at the Churchill School, which operated in the 1960s, 
there were no restrictions on the use of Aboriginal languages. He recalled, quote, the only time, real time we spoke English was when we were in the classroom or were talking to one of the administration staff and or somebody from town that's not Inuit. But otherwise, we, everybody, spoke our language, unquote. The Canadian Welfare Council's 1967 report on nine Saskatchewan residential schools described, quote, an emphasis on relating course content to the Indian culture, unquote, as, quote, imaginative, unquote, and a sign of progress in, quote, making the educational experience meaningful for the Indian child, unquote. By 1968, the Roman Catholic School in Cardston was incorporating Blackfoot into its educational program. In some schools, Aboriginal teachers were brought in to teach dancing and singing. However, as late as the 1969-70 school year, there were only seven Indian Affairs schools that offered courses in Aboriginal languages or used Aboriginal languages as the language of instruction. Despite the encouragement that was offered in some schools and the students' effort to keep their language alive, the overall impact was language loss. Of her experiences at the Baptist School in Whitehorse and the Anglican School in Carcourse, Rose Dorothy Charlie said, quote, They took my language. They took it right out of my mouth. I never spoke it again. Unquote. In some cases, the residential school experience led parents to decide not to teach their children an Aboriginal language. Both of Jolene Husky's parents attended residential school in the Northwest Territories. As a result of their experience in the schools, they raised their daughter to speak English. When Bruce Dumont was sent to residential school in Onion Lake, Saskatchewan, his mother warned him not to speak Cree. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com.